in. We're going to get right back in where we left off last week. We've been talking about the area of faith. And uh, we're going to continue on as we finish up this series here in His image and what it means to be created in His image. What you've got to remember is it's not what you see in the mirror. That wasn't the point. The word image is immature, which means represented. So when God created Adam and Eve in His image, He created them to represent God on this earth to be their, uh, the ambassador here. He gave them a job, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it. They were supposed to take the garden, which was eastward in Eden. We have this picture in our mind that the Garden of Eden was the whole planet. It wasn't. It was a garden that God planted, then put man in it. So man was created prior to the garden being planted. And so then man goes in there and he says, now you fellowship with me and carry this on. Spread it out. That was the intention. That Adam would, in a sense, be God on this earth because he represented God. We know what happened. Of course, he missed it. And so then God raises up the nation of Israel. They were to represent God and this earth, to be separate from all other nations, and that God was to be their king, separate from all other nations. But they liked kings. They wanted a king. It was a lot easier to just say, hey, let's just blame that guy for all the problems that we have. We do that with politicians today. And so they do that. Of course, they miss it. They get this covenant with God that they miss that was breakable. And so because of that, Jesus comes. Not because of that. Jesus was coming anyway. But Jesus comes, and he represents God. He said, I am the express image of the Father. I and the Father are one. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. And he was God's representative on earth as a man. Jesus was here representing God. And so he was in the image of God. That's exactly what that means. And so then you and I, all disciples that are born again to give their lives to Christ, now follow in his footsteps to do what he did. And greater things, because he goes to the Father. And so you and I, as born-again believers, are now the representative of God on this earth. How are we doing, folks? It's not great. It's not great. Because what we've done is we've taken the gospel and watered it down to the point that it's unrecognizable from anything biblical. We've made it so palatable and so easy to come to God that it literally costs you nothing. Do you know why we've done that? Because we've pitched the idea that it's free. It's a free gift. And those are true statements. But if we don't go beyond that, we'll never really see what it was. Because if you look at the pattern that was developed through the book of Acts, what did it cost the disciples of Jesus to come to him and become his disciples? everything their lives their livelihoods their homes and that's not great we don't love that we don't want persecution yet it's interesting that the church always seems to grow during times of persecution but that only matters if this earth is all that we have in other words that anything that we have inside of the 85 90 100 years however old you plan to live if this is all that we have and when we're done we're done and then we float on clouds and play harps and do all that stuff if none of that existed, and this was it, that we'd want to amass and do as much as we can to enjoy this life here. But the thing is, according to God, that this life here is simply temporary. No matter what you build, no matter what you buy, no matter how you grow, it doesn't matter because it's all going to burn. And eternity in a new heaven, new earth, exactly how God had designed the world from the very beginning is really what we're pressing for. So this time here matters for one thing. We are the image of God. We are his representative. But how do we do that? Because as we would all agree, and I think most people would agree, I mean, they're even making documentaries now about the American church. Do you realize that there are now missionaries from Europe coming to America? You know how messed up that is? 
Europe is a very godless country. Now, interestingly enough, uh, over there, the Pentecostal with the sign gifts is the norm. The churches that are there are mostly charismatic. You would think they're more intellectual, reformed, whatever. That's the abnormal side. Most of them are, in one way or another, charismatic. It's just a small percentage of the population that actually cares. And we have followed suit. So now Europe is sending missionaries here. I've met African missionaries that came here to evangelize in America. That tells us where we have fallen. And the church today is unrecognizable from the church that God intended, that he created. And so what do we do? What's changed? The number one thing that's changed is we've taken the burden that was on the individual as the body of Christ, and we've tried to place it on a structure and a hierarchy inside of a system. The go and make disciples is intended for the church, so we have classes. To go and win the loss is not on the individual, it's now on the church, so we have events concerts, carnivals, whatever, all of which are fun, nothing wrong with doing any of those, but if you're going to call it evangelism, maybe we should evangelize. But if we look at the pattern developed through the entirety of scripture, how was evangelism done? There was never a bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand moment. Again, that can be effective, but that's not really the mantra that Jesus had laid out. What was laid out is that you and I as a church would be empowered with the Holy Spirit and to go out into the streets and go out into the world and do the works of our Savior, to be His representative. So when we go, wherever we are, I am now Jesus in that moment because I have the same Spirit, the same authority because He is the head and I am the body. I can do what He did if I do it. But we don't do it because we're really comfortable at sitting here, listening, waiting on the pastor to do something, waiting on the evangelist to come in to do something, waiting on the next prophet to come around. Many of us are waiting for the next revival to hit. Because if you lived through any of the times where there were great revivals in America, it was a time unlike anything you've ever experienced. It was incredible. The healing revivals that took place in the 40s, they were talking about how easy it was to get people healed. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It was all the time. Everywhere they went, people were getting healed just left and right. The Jesus movement, getting people saved and baptized, piece of cake. There's a bunch of hippies. Can you imagine how bad the churches smelled with all those hippies in there? You know the B.O. was un unbelievable. That's true. I am speculating a little, but I'm probably right. So anyway. I mean, but that was a movement that took place, and then the, the, the revivals that took place of the charismatic, I'm calling it somewhat of a charismatic renewal, in the late 80s into the early 90s, even up into the early 2000s, with what happened in Toronto, and what, there was one that was in England, and there was uh, certainly the one down in Brownsville that most of us are familiar with, where God was moving and lives were being transformed. And as a result of that, ministries popped up that now do work all across the world. And that fire and that passion and like, God, I just want to do anything I can for you has now waned to the point where like, God, I want to mix you in a little bit here or there and I'll do something with you here and there and I'll, I'll live my life sort of for you, but I'm not going to dedicate my life to you. I will certainly make you my savior. I don't intend to make you my Lord. And that's where we are today. Which, if you studied scripture, you see in the book of Judges, that's essentially what went on. Yeah, maybe we're not sacrificing children, you and I, the, the world is, but maybe we're not, and maybe we're not worshiping false gods, but we are certainly asleep at the wheel. And we're raising children that have no fear of God. We're raising people that have no holiness as a part of their theology. 
You're seeing ministries fail and pastors fail, both morally and theologically, as they begin to adopt something that's a lot easier and more palatable than what the true gospel is. When Jesus said that the gospel will divide, I think that's what he meant. It wasn't easy to accept because it would cost you something on this earth. But because we want to have numbers and we want to have metrics that we can measure, what makes a healthy church? Well, how many people go? How much money does it have? I know there are, this is crazy, there are atheistic churches out there. I'm not sure how that works, but they exist, and they have large crowds that come. And they serve beer and have all sorts of fun. I don't know what an atheist hymn would sound like, but it would probably be interesting. It, I have no idea. But the thing is, guys, it's like, what, why is all of this existing? Why is this happening? Why, why are there churches gathering? And I just heard something just, I think it was yesterday, somebody sent this to me, that there is a church being planted, I don't remember where it was, uh, but this lady says, we are taking all the greatest things that come from Christianity and Hinduism and um, uh, uh, Muslims and, I mean, all the, pick anything you want, pantheism and all these other, all the isms, and we're kind of taking all the good stuff out of there, but we're eliminating all the homophobic, all the misogynistic, all the bad stuff, we're getting rid of that, and we're just going to gather together and we're going to create a newer testament. And they'll get the same tax exempt status that every other church does. And they'll have followers that will come. Why? Because we're not seeking truth. We're seeking happiness. And if you tell me that I'm okay just the way I am, then yeah, that makes sense. I don't want to change. I don't want to grow. I don't want a chance being wrong. It's not what God intended. See, part of the reason this has happened is because what we have done as a church, Big C, Big C Church, because we have not done a good job of explaining why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do. And we've not done a good job of teaching you how we read the scriptures and how they're structured and, and how they're interpreted, etc. We've not done a very good job of that. We've done a great job of creating some hype and some energy and getting people to raise their hands and getting people to recite a prayer. And then we hand them a Bible and we pat them on the behind and we wish them luck and we send them off and we hope for the best. But because ministry is dirty and it's painful, and if you really get into people's lives, you're going to hear some things you don't like, and you're going to see some things you don't like, and it can get ugly. And sometimes if you really go after God, you're going to find suddenly that the people that you once loved and cherished don't want to be around you anymore. And that hurts. And sometimes those people are friends, and sometimes those people are family, and it hurts. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? See, in John chapter 15, let's go there. Verse 1. John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So in order to be his disciples, what do we do? We bear fruit. But how do we do it? Not the way we've been doing it. Because the way we've been doing is that, yes, he's the vine. Yes, we're the branch. But I want to separate 
and I only want to connect to the vine when it's convenient. I don't want to live my life connected to him. Because if I do that, I may not be able to do some of the things I want. I may not be able to live in the place that I want. I may not be able to buy the house that I want. Because God may have something for, that he wants from me greater than I'm willing to give. That might be the case. But that is how much of the world lives. And Jesus is laying this out. You abide in me. If he's the branch and we are the vine, what happens when we separate? We wither and dry up. That is much of the church that we see today. They're withered and dried up because they have disconnected from the vine and said, listen, I know God, this is what you said, but let me explain to you what you meant. That is why the church is called the bride of Christ. That was a joke. Okay, you guys missed that. We're going to try again here later. Well, you'll catch it. Just try to keep up. I know, I'm talking loud and fast and all that. You see, what happens here is that abiding means to remain stable in a fixed state. We abide by the rules. We conform to them. We abide by the decision. We accept it without objection. And yet, here we are wondering and questioning God. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. You didn't mean that. I guarantee you, you can find any theological preference you want. Just look hard enough. You'll find it. You'll find it. It's out there. The question is, is it true? We're not after holiness. We're after happiness. We just don't want to admit it. Seeing to believe or believing to see, where are we? Where are we? I got to see it. I don't believe it. Well, there's a lot that we don't see. So we've been talking about faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things that is hoped for. It's the evidence of things that is not seen. For by it, that being faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So we know that faith is the substance of things that are hoped for, but the evidence of things aren't seen. So now we believe in order to see. Why? We weren't here when God created everything. We didn't see it. We're taking their testimony. You and I were not here when Jesus walked the earth. We did not see him get baptized. We did not see him uh, face the persecution and get whipped and chained. We did not see him hanging on the cross. We did not see the spear pierce his side. We did not see them take him off the cross and put him in the grave. We did not see him come back from the grave. We did not see him ascend into heaven. We didn't even see the apostles who went and hung out in Jerusalem until they were endued with power. We didn't see any of it. We lived by faith by it because they captured what took place inside of the pages of Scripture. It's their testimony, but it's by faith that we believe it. We trust their words. It's all verifiable, but most of it is simply adopted as truth without ever asking the question, well, why is that? Why do we believe it? Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so they did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who moderately seek after him. That occasionally attend church. You see, there's parts here that we want to change. We know we can't please God without faith. We just want to change the definition of the word. And our society is pretty good at doing that. But then we say he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. That's the uh, branch's refusal to disconnect from the vine. Because nothing on this earth matters compared to him. 
I just want to live my life in servitude to him. I am an indentured servant, a bond servant. We see that with many, many, many of the opening remarks of the epistles, that I am a bond servant to Christ. But I thought I was free. I thought I was a son. Yes, I am. But there is nothing I can do on this earth that compares what Jesus has done for me. So I am in his service. Whatever he wants, wherever it takes me, whatever he asks of me, whatever I own, my money's not my money, my car's not my car, my children aren't my children. I wish that were true sometimes. <laughs> but it's like, Lord, take them to Africa, take them to wherever you want them, because they need to live their lives for you. They can't live on my faith, they need to live on their faith. They must follow God. Nothing belongs to me. Everything belongs to him because I want to be those who diligently seek after him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are not are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, this is the problem. Is we're in the here and now. What have you done for me lately? How does it feel? I want this. We're chasing after things we see instead of chasing after what we can't see. That requires faith. In this country specifically, is you do not have to have faith to exist. You do not have to trust God for your daily provision because there's ways to get it. You do not have to trust God for healing because we got medical professionals all around us. There is not a symptom that doesn't have a pill associated with it. And the good news is they also create pills that will take care of the side effects of the pill that you just took. It's a beautiful setup from a business standpoint. But we don't have to trust God for any of that because we've got him and we've got stuff and we can just kind of keep him over here, and we can kind of do what we want. We don't have to have faith in God. None of us in this room have ever questioned where our next meal is going to come from. There may be times where that meal isn't what you want, but there will be one. There's one that we can find. Because we don't have to trust God. But imagine what it was like for the early church when they were facing persecution. When those in Jerusalem, they began taking a collection because they knew Stuff was coming, there was famine coming, there was persecution coming. Imagine that. It's a little different. So when we look at this, we chase after those things which are seen, and he just said they're temporary. But we should be chasing after those things which are eternal. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We have many that are hearers. We have few that are doers. Because how does one become a doer of the word? Well, they simply read it, and they act upon what it says. They're moved to action by the commandments of God. These are, inside of these pages, are the words of God. This isn't simply a holy book, a list of do's and don'ts, and that's the problem. We treat it as such. A list of do's, a list of don'ts, chicken soup for the soul, I'm feeling down today, I'm going to go find something that makes me feel good today. That's what it's become, but that's not what it is. These pages capture the very words of God, His nature. 
what he wants, his will, his character. Everything about God is found there. If we didn't have it, it would all be a matter of guesswork. You'd have an opinion, I'd have an opinion. We'd have no framework to go against. But because of this, we have it. And that is exactly why we see people act inside of the pages of Scripture. Because they accepted what was said as truth. The woman with the issue of blood didn't arbitrarily just like, oh, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. No, in Micah she knew that when the Son of Righteousness comes, he'll have healing in his wings. That's the tassel, the hem of his garment. She knew because through the prophet Micah, the words of God were laid out. She accepted Jesus as Messiah. Noah moved to action because God said, there's a flood coming. He didn't know what rain was. It had never happened before. There's one coming. you got 120 years. Build that boat. And he did. And I guarantee you, everybody's sitting there like, what is this guy doing? I think it's huge. What's wrong with him? Abraham left a place where he was established to go to a country he had not seen based on the words of God. I mean, that is exactly what we see. We see men and women moved by what God has said and acted upon it. We call that being a doer of the word. Hearer of the word is what most of the churches we hear, we consume but we don't apply it to our life. We live by a moral code. We do some good things, but we're not a doer of the word. If we were, could you imagine what would happen? Could you imagine the people that would be saved? Could you imagine the miracles that would took place? If we actually believed what God said, if we did, what would change? It'd be everything. We would live out the book of Acts. We would see so many things taking place, we wouldn't even know. We'd be like walking down the road and then people bringing them out because our shadow might fall on them and they'd be healed. Wouldn't that be incredible? Because they were obedient, so should we be. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a good question. Because the love of God is demonstrated, not talked about. The love of God is demonstrated when you see a brother in need and you have this world's good to meet that need and then you do nothing. That means that what you have doesn't belong to him, it belongs to you. Is that how scripture has laid it out? No, of course not. You see, what I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned it last week, I truly believe there's a separation coming. And you're going to see it. I, I truly believe we are heading into an end time movement of God that is going to be unlike anything that we've seen. This has been prophesied in your path. But when I say we're close, I really feel like we're close. And does that mean next week? Does that mean next month? Does that mean next year? Does that mean in a decade? I don't know that answer. Because in history's time, 10 years is nothing. I mean, Christ was here 2,000 years ago. We're still talking about him. So I don't know that answer, but there's going to be a separation coming from those who are saved and then those who live for him. We're seeing a separation of what we call the tares and the wheat, where you see people that are kind of drifting over away and they're separating themselves, that obviously these people are not born again. They say things, but that's not what they are. But we're also going to see of those who are truly seeking the Lord, and those who want a God of convenience, a fairy godmother that will be there when we're really in trouble and we need a pumpkin after midnight. 
or whatever, however that works. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great now do you realize that to dig deep and build a deep foundation takes an awful lot of effort it's a lot easier to slap up a house quickly and it's going to look good for a time in fact you may even impress some people but there's going to come a time where things are shaken whatever that looks like and it's going to crumble it's a house of cards he literally demonstrated in this passage exactly what the church would look like. The separation of the two is that when you dig deep and you accept God's word as truth, there is nothing that can happen in this earth that will shake you because your foundation is not in your finances. It's not in the economy. It's not in the World Health Organization. It's not in any politician. It's in God. So bring at me whatever you have because this life is temporary and to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if that's true, how should we live as a doer of the word. That's the thing. It takes effort to dig deep. It takes effort to lay a foundation. And if you've heard me for any length of time, that is one of the greatest things I've talked about where the church has failed, is we have faith with no foundation. We have substance, and we have energy, and we have charisma, but it's all floating in the air. Look at one more, Titus chapter 1, verse 10. It says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You see, this is what Paul is warning about. Is there are these guys, and they're talking, and they're running their mouths, and they claim to be something when they really are nothing. They profess to know God. They talk. But in what they do, they deny him. They deny him by what they do. So it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk the walk. How does one prove their faith in God? Prove their trust, which is what faith means, in God. It's very simple. What he says, that I do. That their life will reflect obedience and the goodness of of God. And here's the problem. In the area of faith, we treat faith as a belief system. It's a system that is used to help you discover God. But the problem we have is our faith is in how God's response to us instead of our, the object of our faith being God. We're waiting on God to meet us where we are instead of our faith being in God. And then there are benefits that trickle down from that relationship. He's the object of our faith. 
not simply the substance of our faith. We don't have faith in healing. We have faith in the healer. He's the object of our trust. So what he says goes because he who promised is faithful. If we don't accept that as truth, we can never get to the ancillary ideas, the ancillary items, because we haven't accepted that God is God, I am not, I will do what he says. I will obey him. Faith isn't about an outcome. It's about him. Many people have walked away from God simply because God did not perform how they thought that he should. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights as we're teaching through the book of Job, we've just got to the portion where God starts questioning Job, not a place you ever really want to be. Where were you when the cornerstone of the earth was laid? When the sons of God sang on high? Where were you? Did you do this? Can you do this? Were you here? That's the creation telling the creator how to act. We know how he'll perform because we see in the words his pattern. But faith isn't about an outcome. It's about an object. Love isn't about a feeling. It's a dedication to another. Because you'll wake up one day and your spouse don't look that good no more. Not always. Not always. Sometimes their breath smells or whatever. It's a decision that one makes. It's about an object, not simply a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. It's in God, where trust is in God. Now look at Matthew chapter 14. I promise I'm wrapping up. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, stop for a moment. Why did he say that? Does that not seem kind of weird? Have you ever once been tempted in your life to just try to walk on water in the middle of a storm, in the middle of an ocean, or wherever? No. Now, many of us at one point or another read this like, I'm going to give this a go. But that was at a swimming pool. That doesn't count. And we were kids. He said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come. So he knew Jesus, because he probably couldn't see him. Do you realize that they didn't have electricity out on the boat? They did not have big lights shining and saying, oh, that's not a ghost, that's Jesus. All they saw is through the lightning, something walking towards them. You'd be freaked out too. And so he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come. Because if it's you, you can do this. And nobody else can. It would be confirmation that it truly was Jesus. So what happened? Jesus, verse 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, how long did he walk? I don't know. How far did he walk? I don't know. But he walked. What does that confirm? The object of his faith in that moment was that was Jesus. And when Jesus says something, I can do whatever he says. 
It's the object of his faith. But you know what happens next. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to seek, beginning to seek, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were on the boat came and worshiped, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. He says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt what? Not your ability to walk on water. That was never the object of your faith. The object of your faith was Jesus. And if Jesus said it, I can do it. But the moment he started looking around, probably sitting here thinking, um, people don't walk on water. Why am I walking on water? This is not how this works. He took his eyes off the object of his faith and started putting it in the circumstances he was facing. He was not being a doer of the word in that moment. I remember not many years ago, but I hadn't flown in years. I prefer to drive everywhere. If it's within about a day's travel, I'm driving, not flying 99% of the time. And I had been on a planes probably since I was in my early 20s. And... Um, we get on that plane, and I'm a little nervous. Now, I don't know why I'm nervous. I never used to be nervous, but suddenly I'm nervous. And, of course, we had a little rough takeoff. It was a little bumpy, and we get up in the air, and it's like, oh, we're traveling at 30,000 feet. I'm like, well, that's a long ways up. And this plane is really heavy, and it doesn't belong up here. And what happens when the plane realizes it doesn't belong up here? Does it go back to the earth? That's all that's going through my head. So I can imagine what Peter was going through. Right? I mean, I, I can only imagine. So the object of faith here was in Jesus until it changed. Let's look at another one. Mark chapter 11. This is another passage you guys are going to be familiar with. I'm wanting you guys to see something here. Verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Now the next day, when they come out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now pause, what's going on? He was leaving Bethany. This is right after the triumphal entry. Okay, it was a very prophetic time. They're going for a walk. He sees a fig tree. There's no fruit. And so he curses it. Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Well, why is it a den of thieves? Because it was no longer a house of prayer. It was now a grocery store. It was now a Trader Joe's, or it was whatever. They've just turned it into something transactional. Verse 18, and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought them how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now go to verse 20. Now in the morning, so the next day, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, you notice that Jesus didn't just take a victory lap here. And he just say, of course, I said it. I'm Jesus. It's what I do. 
What did he say? His immediate response. Because obviously Peter, and I assume the other ones, didn't expect that tree to die. Especially that quickly. His response was, have faith in God. Not in your ability to curse a tree. Have faith in God. When you ask and you do not doubt in your heart, but believe those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. I say to you, whatever things you ask him, you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. But where is our faith? In the things? In the answered prayer? No, it's in God. Because I know I can go to my Father and ask for anything, and he will give it to me. My faith, my, the object of my faith is in God. We have turned this around. Are you guys seeing that? I hope you are. Let's look at another one, Ephesians chapter 6. I want to show you one last thing here. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. You guys know this is about the armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Who are we strong in? The Lord. Not us. In his might. That is the object of our faith. So we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're not trying to do this on our own. The object of our faith is in him. We go on. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the methods, the wiles of the devil, how he attacks. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now jump to verse 17. And then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the helmet of salvation covers what? Your head. It's important. You put the helmet anywhere else, it is far less effective. But that salvation aspect of it is interesting to me. Because we're talking about the object of one's faith. So in other words, how do we come to the Father? Through Christ alone. How are we born again? According to Ephesians 2. It's by faith, through grace, in Christ alone. There is no other way. So we can't do things to make us right before God. It's what He has done. We receive that free gift. So that means when somebody else comes and says, no, 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 no. You must be baptized in order to be right with God. Is that what Scripture says? No. Baptism is important. That's not what it says. Oh, no, you, have, you must have gone through, you must have been baptized as a child, gone through confirmation. That way you can partake of the Eucharist. And every time you partake of the Eucharist, Christ is being sacrificed, and therefore your sins are forgiven you. Is that what Scripture says? No, of course not. Or how about this? That, well, God loved everybody, and he died for the whole world, so therefore you can be Buddhist, you can be Muslim, you can be atheist. It doesn't matter because you're right with God. How do we know the difference? Because a helmet protects your brain. When one puts on a bike helmet, it's not to protect your haircut in case of an accident. It's to protect your brain from becoming a puddle of goo. It may be a puddle of goo to start with. I don't know, but that's the purpose of it. The helmet of salvation, it protects our minds by the object of our faith. In other words, I will never know I'm right with God based off what I do. If you are a, a reformed, a Calvinist, meaning that God just dictates who is going to heaven and who is going to hell, he chose, so there's nothing, you, you have no part in it, you can never really know if you're right with God. Mormons, as I've talked about, they have a works belief system. They're not Christian, but they, they never really know 
if they've done enough to be right with God. Same with Muslims. How do Muslims get right with God? Well, you don't get right with God. You get into heaven if you do certain things. Well, how do you know you've done enough of those things? You never really know. If you're Jehovah's Witness, again, another cult, how do you know that you're one of the 144,000? You never know, but if I just do enough stuff, maybe, just maybe. But in order for you and I to have the confidence to stand before God, what do we need? It's the helmet of salvation. It protects us. That's the first point. And then he goes into the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay. Word of God, words of God, however you want to phrase it, it's the sword. Now, in Romans chapter 10, I want you to flip over there. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. I want you guys to see something here. It says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So what's going on here is Paul's talking in Romans chapter 9. Chapter 10 and chapter 11, he's addressing the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, he's addressing their past. In chapter 10, he's addressing their present. In chapter 11, he's addressing their future. Okay? So he's talking about how will they be saved, etc. How shall they preach? Verse 15, unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay, now, we've heard that verse. You'll hear people, faith comes by hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing. But that's not really how that works. Faith comes by hearing, and accepting what you hear is true. My trust in God comes from the word of God, because it demonstrates the character and attributes of God all through human history. And what is the one thing that is consistent about God's character? He who promised is faithful. Every time. If he promised judgment, did he bring it? Oh, yeah. We don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about the good stuff. See, Abraham did not leave hoping that I get to a good spot. He would never leave if he didn't trust the person whom told him to go. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, none of those people would have acted the way they did if their faith wasn't in God. It wasn't in the outcome. Think about it this way. We'll talk about tithing. We'll give you just as an example. The concept of the first fruit or the tithe is you're bringing the first thing you have. Whether you know that I'm getting more tomorrow or not, you're bringing the first. And I am trusting God that he is going to provide for me. It takes faith to do that. But it's not in the tithe. It's in the God who said, bring this into my storehouse that I may bless you. It's always faith in God. You and I had to put our faith and trust in God in order to be made right. Not just talk about it, but in order to be made right by God, we had to put our faith and our trust in Him. And so as a result of that, it should dictate what we do hereafter. But we weren't looking for an immediate outcome. We're not looking for the benefits of God. We're putting our faith in God. That's what Jesus said, right? So now we've got the helmet of salvation that protects our head and the sword of the Spirit, which is the words of God. Well, what do we do with that? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That means we continually hear it and apply it to our life. What do we call that? Being a doer of the word. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, look what it says. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So God's Word is the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit. From a theological aspect, your spirit is what was recreated by God the moment you were born again, what was made in His image. And the soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. What is the one thing that can discern between what you think, what you want to be true, what you believe, versus what God has said? It's the Word of God. That's why it's the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation. How do you know that you are right with God? Every person I've ever met that's been born again, at some point, usually inside of a six-month window, will somehow or another begin to doubt their salvation because of thoughts that are coming to their head. Why do you think that is? And how do we overcome it? It has to be filtered through the sword of the Spirit. So when we talk about these things that are happening in our country and the churches around us and, and whatnot, how do we distinguish what's right, what's wrong? It always comes back to the Word. The Word is what leads us to God. God is the object of our trust. We're not sitting here hoping for eternity. We know we have it. It will be with Him because He promised it. Do you guys see that? This isn't taught anymore. It's sad. But we need to get back to the basics because we're pressing into the greater things of what it means to be created in His image. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that we can depend on it. We thank you we can always count on you and that there is never anything that you have promised or guaranteed that we don't count on because you have said it and you have promised and you are faithful. Lord, no matter what's going on in our life, we lean on you. No matter what's going on in this world, we lean on you. We know that you are true. So Lord, I just pray for an awakening in our hearts, an awakening to do what you've called us to do, to be a doer of the word and not simply one who sits and consumes, but to actually take action and let you run our lives and you dictate what we do, where we go, how we spend our money, what we listen to, what we consume, Lord. I thank you for a fire and passion inside all of us to do what you've called us to do. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.